Section 1 of Melor of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Melor of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages by David Byrne. Melor of the Silver Hand very long ago there lived in a cornish monastery a boy named melor he was an orphan and his father had been a cornish prince reigning happily enough until his own brother reynold revolted against him and put him to death and indeed if the bishops and clergy of those parts had not used all their influence with reynold and implored him to spare the life of his nephew melor himself would have shared the fate of his father but although the wicked usurper permitted the son of his murdered brother to live before sending him into one of the cornish monasteries to be brought up reynold hacked off the poor child's right hand and likewise his left foot partly no doubt from the motive of revenge partly in order to make the boy incapable of bearing arms in future years now in the remote days of the fifth century artificial limbs were not very skilfully constructed and yet the good monks in whose care melor was placed full of pity at the sight of a young and comely boy so sadly mutilated by his own uncle set to work to contrive for him a new hand and a new foot and as he was the son of a prince they decided that the hand ought to be made of pure silver while the foot should be wrought in brass so in spite of the loss of two such valuable limbs the boy melor grew up happily and contented joining in all the games of his schoolfellows and showing himself more diligent than some of them in the abbey school and always attentive and devout within the stalls of the minister choir even the wildest of those rough cornish lads loved and respected him too much ever to laugh at his lameness or to jeer at the noise poor melor could not help making on the hard stone floors with his heavy brazen foot it may be too that they respected the swing of that silver hand for melor was strong and brave as his father had been and had no reason to fear aught that might befall him saving treachery so magnanimous was the boy that on the rare occasions when a fight was forced upon him he would use only his hand of flesh seldom however did boys of his own age challenge him to such unequal combat but indeed there was small reason for any but the most ill-conditioned to quarrel with a princely lad who made so light of his misfortunes and the cruel treatment of the uncle whose prisoner he actually was just precisely when a strange story began to circulate among the abbey scholars no one could rightly say but like most rumours it grew greatly by repetition losing nothing by being whispered into one ear after another and discussed in quiet corners of the cloister or in the intervals of games some boys spoke of it in a scared awestruck way that frightened their listeners one or two of the most ignorant and therefore the most superstitious began to avoid the boy of the silver hand a few 
who were devoured by curiosity, watched him in an eager, fascinated way, which but for his absence of self-consciousness he would have found embarrassing. Not one of his companions had the courage to ask him if what they had heard was actually true. The rumor was that the young prince was beginning to use his silver hand as though it were a living limb. One boy had seen him catch a ball with it, another had beheld him to use it to pluck a wild rose from the briars, another had caught him in the act of clasping his beer cup in the refectory, another was ready to declare on oath that in a recent game when he took hold of the metal hand it returned his pressure and gently closed upon his own fleshy fist. However honest and good a boy may be, he can never be liked by all. Every man, every boy is sure to have his enemies and detractors. One lad, who had once forced a fight upon Melor, only to be ignominiously beaten by the one hand of flesh, roundly declared that sorcery was at the bottom of this strange mystery of the moving of metal fingers, and that such a lad ought not to be harbored in a cloister school. Retailing his suspicions to a friend, a lad who also had a grudge against Melor, the pair denounced the young prince to their master, a holy monk named Jerome. Father Jerome rebuked them severely. My sons, he said, you are acting as the acolytes of Satan. Your suspicions are as silly as they are wicked, as foolish as they are unfounded. Melor's life is too pure and good, much too well known for its virtue and sincere piety, ever to be subjected to such a calumny as this, to a boy who is as dear to the good God as Melor undoubtedly is, everything is possible, and though I do not say that any miracle is taking place amongst us myself, I have seen nothing of what you hint at. I should not be in the least surprised if our Lord put life and virtue into that poor lad's silver limb. What, however, I suspect is that as he grows older, his thirteenth birthday is just past, he becomes more and more dexterous in the use of his artificial hand. If men are often deceived as to the nature of the things they think they see, and if the expert use of any limb may at times deceive the quickest eye, it is small wonder if young and inexperienced boys like you should deceive yourselves. However, let me hear no more of such wicked suspicions, or I promise you, your penance will be worth the doing. Above all things, I forbid you to make any mention of this to Serialton. Now, Serialton was, in a certain sense, Melor's jailer, a creature of Reynolds' court. Serialton was responsible for the safe custody of the usurper's nephew. Whenever the boys left the abbey precincts, as they frequently did, this tool of the murderer was bound to accompany and to keep a sharp eye upon his charge. Outwardly he was kind enough to the child, and indeed, but for the fear he had of his master, Prince Reynold, he would gladly have shown loyalty and affection to the son of the murdered prince. Melor himself had no sort of fear of his keeper. Indeed, the lad knew not what fear was. So whenever they went abroad, he chatted as gaily to Serialton as to any of the monks, or as to any of his companions, sharing with the man the spoils of the expeditions, fruits or flowers, nuts or berries, according to the season of the year. 
Much forest land lay within a little distance of the monastery, and the boys delighted to explore the dense and pathless woods in spring and summer, sometimes losing themselves in the dark, cool, formless aisles where only birds and beasts, trees and flowers were ever found. And yet to many of them the autumn time was especially sweet on account of the great store of nuts, upon which they could not only feed at will, but fill their bags and satchels with a harvest that would serve them well during the long, cold months of winter. It happened on a lovely October day, the first of the month, as the boys swarmed hither and thither in the woodland, laughing and shouting from pure joyousness, and stripping the hazel boughs of their already ripened treasure, that Serialton, keeping a keener eye than usually on Melor, seemed extraordinarily moody and silent. Indeed, some who noticed the face of the miserable man on that afternoon saw in his countenance an expression of fear and anxiety that they had never beheld before. Melor himself was conscious of nothing but the stir and bustle of the outing, the beauty of the day, the hilarity of his companions, and the rich harvest of nuts that he and the rest were reaping. Climbing tree and bush as nimbly as any squirrel, the lad showed himself equal to the quickest of his schoolmates in seizing and stripping the heavily laden boughs. Apparently solicitous for his safety, Serialton stood ever at the foot of the tree until his young charge had descended. More than once the man turned pale with fear, his legs shook beneath him, and he was compelled to steady himself by leaning against the trunk of the tree. He had seen, or thought he had seen, the boy clasp the bough and pick the nuts with his silver hand as neatly and easily as though the limb were of living flesh and blood. Long ago he had heard the strange rumor, and only yesterday he had carried it to his master the prince. The usurper had shown both rage and terror. It needs but this, he had said to Serialton, to take away the very last support to my rule. Already you have reported to me that the boy is brave and clever, virtuous and pious, loved by the monks and by his companions. It needs but the rumor of his possession of a miraculous hand to make him worshipped by the people as a saint. Cowardly cur that you are, do you not see what your duty is in such circumstances as these? Or must I myself come to the monastery and hack the pair of you in pieces with my own two-edged sword? The creedless are always the credulous, and the most guilty are always the most superstitious. Serialton was consumed with fear. His whole soul revolted against the idea of murdering in cold blood a pure and innocent child, and yet that if he did not do so, his own life would be forfeit, he knew but too well. If only he could deny this strange and uncanny rumor, if only he could report to his master that there was no sort of truth in the report that the silver hand was supple and prehensile. Yet, alas for him, his own eyes now witnessed the wonder. So overwrought was he by superstitious fear, that as he gazed at the boy sitting astride a bough, it seemed to him that the silver fingers were far more dexterous than those belonging to the hand of flesh and blood. "'There are too many of us here, Melor,' said Serialton, as the boy jumped from the bough with a great thud of his brass foot on the earth. "'Let us go a little deeper into the forest. Down here the nut-trees are particularly well laden. 
Yes, bring your sack and satchel. We may need them. Chatting brightly to his keeper, the boy plunged with him further and further into the dark interior of the woodland. But Serialton, said the boy, it looks so very gloomy yonder. I doubt if I shall be able to see the nuts. Twill be lighter presently, the man answered shortly. At any rate, laughed the boy as he disentangled his metal foot from a dense growth of brambles, the others have not been here. I doubt if any man or boy has ever come so far before. There is no sign of a pathway, is there? We shall come across a pathway very soon, said Sari Elton. I don't see any hazels hereabout, remarked Melor, peering through the thick autumnal foliage. How the leaves have fallen in some places, and in others how they cling to the trees, just as we cling to life, Sari Elton. The boy was walking a little ahead of his companion, holding a briar here and a branch there, that it might not be in the way of the man, whose ashy, haggard face he did not look at. "'Give me your bag,' the jailer said suddenly. "'No, not the sack. The book satchel.' "'Really, Sari Alton, I don't think we can get much further,' said Melor, as he took from his shoulder the satchel which hung by a strong leathern strap. We should need an axe to force our way through the undergrowth. If it gets too thick, I'll cut it away with my dagger, the man muttered in a low tone. He had already taken the weapon from its sheath, and unperceived by the lad was cutting off the strap of the satchel. Oh, but that long dagger was keener than a butcher's knife. Suddenly, Melor gave a little cry. His arms had been seized from behind, and already the leathern thong was binding the hand of silver to the hand of flesh. Seri Alton! was all the boy could exclaim, as the man seized him roughly and began to bare his throat. For one long moment the liquid eyes of the child rested upon the face of the man, a face upon which murder was written large, and then the lad shut his eyes and prayed. Sweet Jesus, pity and forgive me, as I forgive Seri Alton and my uncle, he murmured. And even as the words rose to heaven, the dagger fell, and the pool of blood was dyeing the yellow leaves with a lurid crimson. A certain courage came back to the murderer now that his victim lay stiff and stark at his feet. The afternoon had waned, twilight had fallen, and the woodland was very still. Sari Alton told himself that he had a duty to perform. He must lose no time in giving his master some positive proof of Melor's death. To carry the entire body to court was impossible. He would cut off the head and bear it with all speed through the gathering darkness of the autumnal day, straight to the feet of Reynold. As for the body... What better tomb could it have than this untrodden spot of forest land? Soon would the showers of falling leaves cover it with the pall of crimson and russet, and hide it for ever from the face of man. So away sped Serialton upon his horrible mission, trying in vain to get comfort from the thought that however great was the crime he had committed, he had at least done his duty to a tyrant master. Away he ran with his dreadful, if sacred, burden, scarce noticing that he was plunging deeper and deeper into the forest, 
until he found himself confronted with a darkness so pitchy and a growth of brambles so dense that he was fain to retrace his steps even when after a protracted journey through the forest he found himself on the highway the road he had to traverse was long and difficult and though he dreaded the thought of meeting any human being the darkness and the solitude weighed upon him heavily an almost unbearable thirst afflicted him and yet even when at long intervals he found himself near a dwelling-house he dared not venture to beg a cup of water through the darkness of a starless and moonless night the soft pleading eyes of melor seemed to look into his own oh to be rid of the terrible burden that he carried in the bag upon his shoulder oh to find what he knew could not be found in the region he was traversing a priest to shrive him from his awful sin gladly now that he came to consider the matter most gladly would he have given his own life if by doing so he could have saved that of this innocent and affectionate boy to serialton as he made his unsteady way through the darkness it seems as though one of the tortures of hell was already afflicting him his thirst was intolerable almost maddened by his intense longing for drink he cried out wretch that i am i shall die by the roadside for want of a drop of water to his intense astonishment a voice seemed to answer him out of the darkness nay to be speaking almost in his very ear serialton strike the ground near you and you will find a spring in an agony of fear he dropped the bag with its sad burden to the earth whatever the fact may have been to him the voice was the clear sweet treble of melor whose living tones had so often and so lately fallen upon his ear yet startled as he was so terrible was the agony of his thirst that he began to grope about in the darkness and to strike the ground with his staff and behold on his right hand ran a stream of pure water of which he made haste to drink it was nearly midnight when serialton reached the prince's palace and demanded immediate audience with his master reynold had retired to rest but was lying awake plotting and planning how best to make secure the throne to which he had no right no sooner did he hear of serialton's arrival than he ordered him to be admitted sire began the murderer placing his bag upon the floor the deed is done behold the head of melor eagerly did the usurper stretch out his hands to take the yet bloody relic of his brother's son fixedly did he look upon the beautiful face of the boy who however violent his end had died in the grace of god and at peace with all men it is enough exclaimed the prince at length take it out of my sight give to it and to its trunk the burial of a prince i am not well send my servants to me even as he had gazed at the still features of the murdered child he had sickened and fallen into a mortal complaint three days afterwards reynold appeared before the judge of the living and the dead serialton did not linger at court on the very morning after his arrival he set out early for the forest in which lay the body of melor carrying with him the severed head and determined in his bitter sorrow and penitence that he would not rest until the young prince had received the obsequies of a christian 
Morning was somewhat advanced when he plunged into the woodland and began his sorrowful search for the headless corpse. Deeper and deeper he made his way until the shadow of thickly planted trees led him into the dark gloom of the thicket in which he had committed his terrible crime. Suddenly he stopped, blinded and bewildered. There could be no doubt that he was approaching the scene of the crime, and yet, just at the point where yesterday the shadows had been so dense that even the strong afternoon sunlight could not pierce them, a brilliant white light bathed the little hollow in its beauty. Trembling with fear, he pushed his way through thorns and brambles, thinking at every step of the terrible death march he had led the unsuspecting boy not many hours before. As he advanced, the light increased. White indeed was the lovely radiance, and yet tinged and shot with gold. Pressing on in his eagerness to see, if possible, the source of this wonderful illumination, his first thought was that the monks of the abbey had found the body and were preparing to sing its dirge in the forest. Or, he asked himself, were they making ready to bury the poor innocent in the very place where they had found him lying? For the light seemed now to be that of many waxen torches. Tapers indeed there were, lighted tapers beyond counting. But who were the white-clad bearers of these innumerable candles? Surely they were not the dead boy's schoolfellows. Young indeed they seemed to be, but how utterly unlike the rough, shock-headed Cornish lads of the monastery school. Boys they undoubtedly were, but surely such radiant spiritual countenances as these were never worn by mortal children. Was it possible that heaven had sent its bodyguard of youthful angels to watch the headless trunk of Reynold's victim? A vision of blinding beauty in very truth it was, too dazzling for the unhappy wretch who vainly endeavoured to reach the outer ring of these celestial watchers. With a great cry for mercy, Serialton flung himself face forward upon the earth and lay there, confessing his sin and imploring the forgiveness of heaven. Whether he had swooned or only slept, he knew not. Somebody was bending over him, and the kind voice of Father Jerome was in his ear. Slowly raising himself to a kneeling posture, he exclaimed, For the love of God, Father, hear the confession of a sinner whose guilt is greater than he can bear. Even while he made his confession, he was conscious of the tramp of many feet in the immediate neighborhood. Long before he had finished, the chant of the miserere assured him that the monks and boys were already bearing the body of Melor to the abbey. Sorrowfully, yet soothingly, the wail was borne back to him on the noonday air. The deep voices of the monks alternating with the piercing treble of the lads, and turning the dim woodland into a temple of prayer and supplication. Away in the distance the lights of many funeral torches glimmered through the trees, and when the miserere ceased, a brighter, gladder chant rose jubilantly enough to heaven, the canticle of praise and thanksgiving that is used at the obsequies of innocent little ones. Benedicite omnia opera domini domino. Laudate et super exaltate ium in saecula. 
It need not surprise us that the voice of the people canonized the poor child whose life had been pure and holy and whose death had been so cruelly sad. Wonderful things were spoken of and believed by the simple Cornish folk of those remote times, and to this day it is told how all through the dark October night that followed upon his murder the dark wood was lit up with a heavenly light and the forms of angel children were seen kneeling around the headless body and hovering over the spot that was soaked with its life-blood many years afterwards some if not all of mellor's relics were carried to the little town of amesbury in wiltshire where a benedictine nunnery was founded by elfrida the widow of edgar who thus tried to make some expiation for the assassination of her own son at corfe castle the pre-reformation church in this old world town still retains its ancient dedication to our lady and saint melor or melorius as it is sometimes written the unhappy serialton gave himself up entirely to penance leading the austere life of a hermit and never ceasing to implore the mercy of god and the intercession of the holy boy whose life he had so ruthlessly taken End of section 1